Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, Trump hospitalized. I came here, wasn't feeling so well. I feel much better now. We're working hard to get me all the way back. I have to be back. Donald Trump is in hospital with COVID-19, but reports about his health are still unclear. With just 30 days before the U.S. election, what impact will this have in the campaign? And after spending months downplaying the pandemic, will Donald Trump now change his approach to COVID-19? To break it all down, we're joined by David Frum, former U.S. Ambassador Bruce Heyman, and Ovik Roy. And then, cutting it close. Here's the bottom line. We will be here for Canadians, whatever it takes, for as long as it takes. Why is the federal government waiting to the last moment to extend support programs to Canadians struggling to stay afloat? And will the commercial rent program be extended and at what cost? And is that promise to create 60,000 jobs through the Canada Infrastructure Bank real? The employment minister Carla Qualtro joins us. And then, October crisis? We cannot receive people in our homes in red zones. If you're inviting guests for a party, you're breaking the law. Should police in Quebec have sweeping new powers to enter a home if someone is allegedly breaking COVID rules? Recently recovered from the virus, Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet weighs in on the pandemic and if he wants an election now over the government's response. And then, deficit cliff. Why does Canada's parliamentary budget officer say Canada is close to falling off an economic cliff? The budget watchdog himself, Yves Giroux, is our special guest on the Scrum. And then the Green Party gets a historic new leader last night. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. I think the, the masks are okay. You have mask. to understand, if you look, I mean, I have a mask right here. I put a mask on, you know, when I think I need it. Tonight, as an example, everybody's had a test and you've had social distancing and all of the things that you have to, but I Just wear like masks when needed. When needed, I wear a mask. Right now, the President of the United States is at Walter Reed Hospital after testing positive for COVID-19 early Friday morning. But the world is still unclear about what condition he's actually in. As the President himself said, the next 48 hours are critical. But a bizarre press conference from his doctor fudged key health questions like whether the President ever had supplemental oxygen. Turns out he did. And Trump's Chief of Staff contradicted reports that he was fine all along, telling reporters privately he was actually in medical distress. Now, multiple Republican senators and members of Donald Trump's inner circle, like former Governor uh, Chris Christie, have tested positive in what looks like a White House hot zone. For a president who has downplayed the pandemic and often mocked people like Joe Biden for wearing a mask, what will the political impact on the campaign be? To discuss all this, I'm joined by the senior editor of The Atlantic magazine and the former speechwriter for George W. Bush, David Frum, and the former policy advisor to Mitt Romney and Rick Perry and the president of the Foundation for Research and Equal Opportunity, Ovik Roy. Thanks, gents. Uh, good to see you this morning. David, uh, I just got to start with you. What is the direct impact of this on the, on the campaign? Does the president get a sympathy bump or is this an indictment of his approach to the pandemic? Well, we know the answer to that. Uh, Reuters released a poll just this very morning, um, finding that uh, the Biden lead has grown a little bit. He's now 10 points ahead and finding that 65 percent of Americans think that the president brought his condition upon himself. So there seems to be no sympathy bounce at all for him and great awareness that the president was reckless. 
Probably worth mentioning here that Friday was also a peak day for coronavirus infections in the United States, the highest number of new cases in two weeks. Almost 40,000 other Americans were confirmed diagnosed with the disease on Friday. Yeah, you don't want to lose sight of that. Ovik, by the way, you have a medical background. You went to medical school, so you have a, both a political and, and a medical view on this. How will this change the campaign only 30 days away? Uh, the president cannot be on the campaign trail for at least, you know, almost two weeks. Well, I mean, it's obviously always hard to predict how these unprecedented situations will affect the campaign. I agree. Obviously, we see the polling data right now suggesting that uh, while the president brought this on himself, he's been mocking those who've been more cautious. Having said that, one can imagine a situation where if his opponents are really merciless in criticizing him or wishing for him to be ill or something like that, that somehow that might uh, backfire. But right now, you got to believe that uh, because he has been so uh, over the top in saying people have been wrong to be so cautious, him getting this sick is going to is going to undercut that in our argument. Yeah, D David, by the way, I mean, once he gets this, very few people are now talking about Donald Trump's debate with Joe Biden last week. No one's yeah. mentioning the New York Times story that Donald Trump paid only $750 in taxes. Does this situation reset the campaign in some way? Um, the, the campaign has been set in its present form for a long time, possibly since Inauguration Day of 2017. Uh, Americans have strong views and, and feelings about Donald Trump, and they really are put in place. One thing that may this uh, illness and the debate may affect is this. Um, Republicans have had a big money disadvantage in this campaign. Um, they, they, the small dollar gifts that they relied on so heavily in 2016 um, have disappeared or dwindled, a victim of the economic troubles. The Republicans are dependent on super high dollar donations, um, donations of $100,000 and more. And those depend on the president's ability to do appearances. If the president can't do appearances, the big dollar donations dwindle. Um, the small dollar donations have dwindled, and that has big effect not just on the presidential race, but down the ballot, senators, House, governors, and so on. Yeah, over. I want to go back. What you're seeing. Go ahead, over. Yeah, I was just going to say one thing you're seeing with the polling data that's very interesting this year is that Trump is is slightly overperforming with minorities, uh, with la Latinos and blacks. He's doing better than Republican presidential candidates, including himself in 2016, have done. On the other hand, he's significantly underperforming with the elderly. The older white voter has been a core strength of Trump in the past, but he's lost a lot of those votes. And I, I would suggest that, or hypothesize that a lot of that's because it's the elderly population that's been hardest hit by the COVID situation. Yeah, now, now uh, David, Joe Biden has suspended all his negative ads because the president is sick. The Trump campaign, by the way, has not stopped there. Does the Biden campaign have to change its strategy now? Um, I, I think at this point, the focus is not just the Biden campaign. It's Democrats down the ballot. Um, I, I think we're at a point now where really what is at, uh, at stake, I think the presidential race is pretty much baked. Um, the quite, we're talking about the degree of the margin, and we're talking about what that means for the Senate. Do the Republicans keep the Senate, or do they lose that, too? And uh, down there, in those races, um, negative ads are, are flourishing, and they are a big threat to candidates like Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Uh, Ovik, I was just reading uh, uh, Bob Woodward's book, um, and he interviewed the president 17 times. And the president said to him, Bob, I won last campaign, the 2016 campaign, in the last week or two of the campaign. Okay? Could things, I mean, we're still 30 days away. Uh, in politics, that can be a lifetime. Could things still change again if he recovers? 
I mean, anything is possible, of course, but as, as David said, I mean, the polls have been pretty stable since the pandemic. Before the pandemic, Trump was actually leading in a lot of polls. The economic strength was blowing his chances. But since the pandemic has, has emerged, and again, that those older voters who are particularly uh, skeptical of the president right now, I don't see how that dramatically changes. The only thing that could happen is if somehow we get some miraculous news on the vaccine front, the economy really starts to spike in a way that changes the way people believe. I suppose that's possible, but it just seems unlikely. I think where it really has an effect, as David said, is on the Senate races. That, from a policy standpoint, is incredibly important. Do Democrats or Republicans take the Senate for 2021? That's going to drive a lot of whether Biden's agenda or a more mixed agenda gets through. Yeah, on the, uh, by the way, does this have national security implications, David? Uh, I think it about does, does he have the capacity to lead? Does he have to talk to Vice President Pence? The, because as, as far as I can tell, the vice presidential debate, which will take place Wednesday, October 7th, suddenly becomes significantly more relevant and urgent than I think in the past. Well, this has been a particularly chaotic White House, um, one with very unclear lines of authority, unclear lines of communication. Um, and that is uh, tempting to foreign adversaries. Um, in a way, though, Donald Trump is sometimes the beneficiary of his own chaos. It's precisely because the Trump administration is so unpredictable, could do so many crazy things, that that has um, let America's most dangerous opponents, um, they've avoided drama. Instead, what is happening is that ch the, the Chinese economic competitors and other aggressors, they are letting America crumble from within and watching American power and credibility deteriorate. One of the things that's really incredible about this pandemic is how little international cooperation there's been among the developed countries. I mean, we haven't had anything like a Zoom G20 meeting. We haven't had shared statements by world leaders. If literally anybody else were president right now, including Mike Pence, all of those things would be happening. The United States would be coordinating with others. One other point, just to pick up on the last question. I think Canadians need to understand that one of the ways Canada and the United States have been very different is the Americans have not done the job of putting a floor under the incomes of the um, less affluent population in the way that Canada has done. And there has been, and this is, I think, a backdrop to this election, a collapse in incomes in the lower two-thirds of the wage pool. Uh, yeah, Ovik, you want to pick up on the national security implications of all this? Yeah, the, the real historic analog here is to World War One, when Wilson, who badly mismanaged the 1918 influenza pandemic, he got struck with the, yeah. the so-called Spanish flu, and that affected the Treaty of Versailles, a lot of the negotiations there. So uh, it is possible that in these last several months of the presidency, if, if the president were to get seriously ill, that that could affect a lot of things. Uh, just one last thing on the overall, and David, I just want to pick up on this point about the global cooperation. The United States obviously uh, usually would set the agenda on this. There's 206 or more thousand Americans dead from this. Um, those pictures that have emerged from the White House of these, what are now being called super spreader events, where people, uh, the, the inner circle of Donald Trump, nobody's wearing a mask even since Donald Trump uh, yeah. was uh, diagnosed. What message does that send right now, David? Well, the, the Trump circle and then Republicans through the country have interpreted the mask as a, as a visual declaration, Trump was wrong about the coronavirus. So the more, curiously, the more the mask is indicated, the less willing they are to wear it because it's an admission of failure. That's how it's perceived. And that's why it's, it's so intensely resented. I mean, you would think, why would people care one way or the other? It, it, as with so many things, might hurt, can't, uh, sorry, might help, can't hurt. Normally you take those precautions. But it is, it is something that the Trump inner circle and then his party finds super provocative. It's a declaration of loyalty to the president not to wear one. He's made it a culture war symbol, which is incredible.
All right, guys, I, well, there's lots to go. It's a very fluid situation. Uh, Ovik, Roy, David, from great to have both of you trying to break it down. Uh, things will change by the minute, but I appreciate you joining us today. Coming up, will this, and we'll come back to this story later in the program, but COVID numbers are surging in Canada as Canada enters the second wave, and so too, by the way, are the numbers on the deficit. How much is the government willing to spend? Coming up next, the Employment Minister Carla Qualtro joins us on the government's new response. Stay right here with Question Period. Hashtags, inaction, and ethical scandal. Those are the consistencies we see with this Prime Minister. Canadians, particularly in the biggest crisis of all of our lifetime, expect more. That's right. They expect a plan and they expect a response when families are worried about a second wave. A second wave of COVID and growing numbers, a $328 billion deficit and growing numbers. These twin crises, health and economic, are leaving millions of Canadians scared, struggling and looking for help. So why has the government waited until the very last moment to extend key emergency relief programs like the transition of the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit to an enhanced EI and a suite of other relief benefits? Are these programs getting uh, enough oversight and transparency by Parliament? And are they becoming dangerously unsustainable? As the parliamentary watchdog, who will join us later on the show, has warned. And what about one key program that's ended, like the commercial rent benefit? Will that be renewed? Let's find out. Joining us now is the Minister of Employment, Carla Qualtro. Minister Qualtro, first of all, great to see you. And I hope you and the family are doing well. Um, look, the government passed almost $50 billion in spending on things like the enhanced EI and paid sick leave with only four and a half hours of parliamentary debate. The opposition complained saying you didn't even get a chance, they didn't get a chance to talk to key witnesses or experts on this. Why not take the time for parliament to have a proper debate and potentially improve this kind of spending? Why uh, wait till the last minute? Well, again, a couple of things. So first of all, we announced six weeks ago that we were going to introduce these three benefits. We were going to legislate them. We, uh, there's nothing new, significantly new, maybe a little more generosity in the package that has now passed Royal Assent. Um, and quite frankly, it's the same. Uh, these debates have been going on for months in terms of the key elements that would be in our income support measure. So we were pretty confident that this new uh, package of benefits responded to the concerns the other parties had. I've been working closely with my critics the whole time um, for months now, trying to address their concerns. But, but to be and fair, I, Minister, I think it was last minute. I mean, the, you, you cut a deal with the NDP on paid sick leave and making sure that extra hundred dollars a week gets to people that that's significant money and it was four and a half hours of debate on that I, I just wonder I know I understand the need for the programs but do you understand the need for parliamentary oversight I sure do and I I completely understand their perspectives and and you know all I can say is we got to the point where we needed to deliver for Canadians by Friday um, so that on Monday people could start applying for these benefits and have no disruption in them and that was the priority moving forward and as I said we did announce these benefits six weeks ago and that we'd legislate them. We told people what would be in them, how it would work, how the transition would happen. The EI piece is totally separate. That wasn't a part of the legislation. What was really at play were the three benefits. Right. Although over that six weeks, as you know, Parliament was prorogued. But one, speaking of disruption, the, the commercial rent assistance program expired yeah. uh, last Thursday. Uh, there's a lot of businesses that will depend on them. Now, I know that program wasn't as successful. There was 
you know, maybe, maybe a billion of the three billion that you had in that program was only taken up. Is there a plan for either to redesign that program and for businesses who now is like, what's going to happen? They're anxious. Are you going to renew the rent assistance program? Yeah, so, you know, the Prime Minister, as you just said, has said this week that that program didn't yield the results and the support we had hoped. It was provincial jurisdiction. We had expected the program to do better. Um, the Finance Minister is absolutely committed to um, a next iteration of that program and said yesterday uh, in the Senate or the other day in the Senate, I can't remember, I apologize, that it, that it would be, um, there'd be a new version, but she doesn't yet have the specifics to share and so I can't share them with you. You, you realize when people say they don't, you know, you pro, your, your party prorogued parliament to get the specifics. This was the big reset. Uh, this is the crisis. Yep. How after six weeks of prorogation, you could have worked with the provinces and got it ready. How are you still working on it after the program is already dead? Well, nobody stopped working during these six weeks. Like, it, you know, perhaps Parliament wasn't sitting, but all of us were working very hard to bring forth, um, to work on the, the, the speech from the throne and the new vision that we had to share with Canadians about how we were get them through uh, the pandemic and into economic recovery. And the finance minister, since her appointment, has been working hand in glove with her colleagues across the country, trying to figure out the best way forward in collaboration. So we haven't stopped working at 100%. Minister, the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, who's going to join us in a minute, uh, projected a deficit of $328 billion. By the way, that doesn't account for some of the enhanced programming that your government's done even since then uh, for the pandemic. Nobody's begrudging the needs for, to support Canadians and businesses. I just want to say that. But he does argue that the government yeah. is dangerously close to being fiscally unsustainable. Very few factors can push over the edge. He's demanding a fiscal anchor, a benchmark of spending, like the debt-to-GDP ratio your government's often spoke about. Um, first of all, do you have a fiscal, because we haven't seen a budget since a year and a half ago, is there a fiscal benchmark, a fiscal anchor that you guys are operating under? And if so, can you tell us what it is? Well, first of all, I think the, the first priority of our government, as you said, is to spend whatever it takes to keep Canadians safe. Um, it's particularly related to COVID. And again, as the finance minister has been signaling, and as we confirmed in the speech from the throne, we're going to um, tell Canadians exactly the economic path forward through an updated economic response plan, through a fiscal update, um, to really dig in and explain um, exactly how much our current measures are costing and what the economic forecast is moving forward. Uh, until then, Evan, I think it, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to delve into those kind of details, but um, the finance minister, again, is committing very, you know, publicly to making that information available to Canadians. But I just, I, this is important, though, because you just said we're going to spend whatever it takes. When you have the Fitch Financial Rating Agency, and I'm quoting them saying, the failure to set clear post-pandemic uh, fiscal anchors and reduce the federal deficit to sustainable levels could be, quote, negative uh, on the economy. So I just want to know, uh, let's say we've got $330 billion in deficit right now. If it spends whatever it takes, would your government spend up to $500 billion in deficit? Would that be on the table in the whatever it takes mandate you, you're talking about? Well, and be clear, I said whatever it takes with respect to COVID. We will not be um, in any way uh, frugal um, in our efforts to make sure Canadians stay safe. But so um, could that go, it, but, again, but, but it's we also, $300 billion on at least on, on pandemic spending. Again, it's a necessity, I'm not arguing, but 
Is your government prepared yep. to go to $500 billion, $800 billion in deficit? And I, I, can't, I can't speculate how much this is going to cost us. We don't know what's coming. But I can remind you as well that we preserved our AAA creating a week and a half or two weeks ago, and it was very clearly said by an independent third party that our measures were reasonable, that they were time-limited, that they were appropriate given the magnitude and size of the um, crisis we were facing as a country and really signaled to the rest of the world that Canada's on the right financial track, that we had the fiscal firepower going in and we are being reasonable in our approach to uh, economic support for Canadians in these really unprecedented but, times. But yes, I'm, I'm it's a massive to, amount of spending. To, I'm just trying to get a, a measurement. For, for four years, your government says, don't hold us to deficit, hold us to debt to GDP ratio. It was about 31%. Yep. Now you're at 48, closing in at 50. Usually about 60% is where the alarm go, bells go up. Again, I know it's the pandemic, but it, under the spend whatever it yep. takes, how high are you guys willing to go? And like I said, Evan, I'm not prepared to sit here and give you a number. Um, to be honest, that's not the conversation framing that we have. We know we have to uh, be responsible with the way we spend Canadians' money, but we also are very, very convinced that the way we're going to get through this is to support uh, Canadian individually, but also businesses, and, and take on the debt so Canadian families don't have to take it on themselves. That's just, right. you know, we, we understand this is a ton of money, um, but this is a massive, unprecedented crisis. All right, got to leave it there. Always appreciate your time, Minister Qualtro, in a very, very busy time. Take care. Coming up next on the program, police get new powers in Quebec to stop the second wave, but are they going too far? Bloc Quebecois leader Yves-Francois Blanchet joins us on that and on why his party will not support the government. Stay right here with Question Period. We've said from the very, very beginning uh, that testing is going to be key to getting this uh, pandemic under control. That's why from the spring, uh, we worked with the provinces on increasing testing capacity, on uh, delivering equipment and reagent and supports needed to scale up the testing. So welcome back to the program. Quebec gives police expanded powers to find COVID rule breakers. Police can now get a fast telewarrant. They can actually go in and break into a home of people having a party who are in violation of the COVID rules and fine them up to $1,000. That's a response to the surge in cases in that province. Someone who knows all too well about the dangers of COVID is the leader of the Bloc Québécois, Yves-François Blanchet, who just returned to Parliament after spending two weeks in isolation with COVID-19. What does he think about the Quebec rules for police? Do they trample on the civil liberties or are they needed right now? And after voting for the new spending measures from the federal government, why is the bloc still not going to vote for the speech in the throne and force a confidence vote? Let's find out. Joining us now is Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet. Great to have you here from your riding uh, in Quebec. And by the way, very good, sir, to see you in good health. I'm glad that's okay. Um, I mean, you have a personal experience with um, COVID-19, now the President of the United States has been tested positive for it. What's it like and what's your view on, on how he contracted the uh, virus? I must admit that to Mr. Trump, like to anybody else, I wish, uh, I wish him to go through that uh, as easily and as well as possible. And I want the campaign in the United States to be to go on, and I want the people to be uh, offered a real choice. So there must be a campaign. Uh, he is in a different situation because he's not that young and he's got a few conditions that could make it a little harder for him to go through it. 
uh, and uh, we cannot make as if there was not some kind of irony in that situation with him. Let's talk about how Quebec is handling it. Police in Quebec have been got the power to, to uh, get a rapid telewarrant if they think someone in one of those red zones like Montreal is having a party which breaks the new rules. The police can enter um, and fine them for $1,000. Are you concerned that this could violate the civil liberties of the people of Quebec by lowering the threshold police need for probable and reasonable grounds to enter into someone's uh, house? I wouldn't have liked to be the one to make such a decision, but there's something that we have stopped saying and we should keep saying is that there's much more about this disease that we do not know than there is that we do know. And there are some measures that have to be taken without being, being absolutely certain that this is the right thing to do, but something has to be done. And I am absolutely certain that the government of Quebec and Mr. Legault are doing the best they can. I want to just go to federal politics. In August, you said that your party will f would force a confidence motion over the WE scandal unless the Prime Minister, the Finance Minister, and Justin Trudeau's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, resigned. Well, the Finance Minister has resigned. Are you still ready to force another confidence motion over the WE controversy? The idea was never to go or not to go into election. The, the, uh, the idea has always been to go if the government is unworthy of its mandate. What happened is that the Prime Minister decided to throw Mr. Mono to the crocodiles, and then he, uh, I don't know what's the word in English, he prorogé, uh, and said that there would be a, a speech of the throne, and then he made his uh, official and solemn address to the nation. We suppose that we had to give him a chance to start anew. We are very uh, unhappy with was. Uh, uh, what, what's the content of the speech of the throne? Actually, there's no real content in the, spe in the speech of the throne, but uh, violation of the province's uh, jurisdictions. But I'm just trying to figure this out. You don't like what they're doing, uh, but there was a confidence motion. You had an opportunity not to support them, and your party, like everybody else, supported the Liberals' uh, extension of the enhanced EI to take people off the CERB, the paid sick leave. So you're voting for these key huge $50 billion, and yet you don't one, support the government. I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. I will be the one defining the meaning of our votes, if you do not mind. We voted for a law that did, con con the content of which uh, was, uh, for a very large part, what we had been asking for a long while, what the Conservatives had been asking for a long while, and also the NDP. Uh, it was not a vote of confidence. The law has been adopted unanimously. This vote of confidence is a show. It's only show business put forward sorry, by this so, government no, sorry, trying technically, to create it is a for itself. Technically, it's a, it's a confidence motion because it's a motion of money, supply. $50 billion is a confidence motion, whatever you want to call it. You know that and I know that. Okay, but when the result of something is so clear that everybody was in favor of the law, saying that it had to be adopted under uh, uh, attribution of time or saying that it is a vote of confidence is placing politics and partisanship before the best interest of the people and of the people who are sick or of the people who fear to be sick or the people who lose their job. You know, 
again, I'm just trying to appreciate this. You accepted that. That's a huge, huge bill. I, I agree with you. It didn't certainly get, didn't get a lot of parliamentary debate, only four and a half hours on that. Nonetheless, you guys voted for it. So what else would you like to see to support the speech from the throne? I mean, you've taken a 50 billion bite out of the cookie. What else is there? The content of the speech of the throne had many things with which we do not agree. There's this infringements on, uh, on the jurisdictions of the provinces. There's this uh, pretense of relance uh, vert green recovery, yeah. uh, which is not in the plan. There's no such thing in the plan. Uh, and we have absolutely no reason to trust that the government is doing something right with this uh, speech. Most of all, the government has uh, decided to suspend the activities of the parliament and go uh, with a speech of the throne, which was supposed to present to the population of Quebec and Canada what was the plan. There's no plan. There are some vague intentions. It, it is the, the promises of this government for the last election being repeated in the speech of the throne, admitting doing so that nothing was done of what was promised before. And this is not a plan to get out of the crisis. Monsieur Belanger, I got to leave it there. Great pleasure to have you on the program, sir. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Coming up, the Scrum takes on Canada's $328 billion deficit with millions of Canadians looking for federal support. Can the government afford to keep spending or can it afford to stop spending? Our special guest, and you don't want to miss him, will be the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. With the second wave of COVID-19 cresting across major provinces, the government has put forward a second wave of massive financial supports, pushing through close to $50 billion in support to help people transitioning off the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit onto that enhanced EI and the suite of other recovery benefits that will keep paying people who qualify 500 bucks a week. There's also the expanded sick leave, the promise to spend $10 billion on an infrastructure over three years. And new questions about other programs like commercial rent support, a program that ended last week, is another one coming. It's all worth noting that there was a grand total of four and a half hours of debate on most of this in Parliament as it was rammed through at the last moment. What's the cost of all this spending? Is Canada using up all its fiscal power, leaving other big promises like, I don't know, childcare unaffordable? And a new report from Canada's parliamentary budget officer says this is all barely sustainable. And worse, some of it lacks transparency. Let's find out more. The Scrum is here. Joining us is CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief, Joyce Napier. And from BNN Bloomberg, the host and our friend Amanda Lang is here. And our special guest is the man himself, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Uh, good to see everybody. Mr. Giroux, i got to start with you. You said in your new report that these new programs are dangerously close to being unsustainable. Can you explain why? Of course. Uh, sustainability is often defined as debt that does not go on increasing forever as a percentage of GDP. What we're seeing with the most recent uh, report that we released on, uh, on September uh, 28th, sorry, 29th, um, we see that the debt to GDP ratio before any measures in the speech from the throne will be increasing, uh, of course, jumping uh, significantly in the current fiscal year, but will keep increasing for the next few years before slightly decreasing. So uh, reminding people that this is before any speech from the throne measures. So that means that if the government was to implement a few measures that would cost 
billions of dollars, just a few billion dollars of additional spending, then the debt to GDP ratio would keep increasing over a five-year horizon, which is putting it on an increasing track and dangerously um, uh, leaning towards ever-increasing debt to GDP ratio unless there's a, an increase in taxes or reduction in other types of spending. So that's what the report that we released last week uh, underlined. Amanda, let me swing over to you. Our, you know, we talk about structural deficits, the lack of a fiscal anchor. We haven't seen a budget. Are you, nobody begrudges these programs. They've been necessary. But are you concerned about the long-term economic cost, Amanda? I think absolutely, and I think anybody who remembers the 1990s and how difficult it is to get a, a deficit and, and ballooning debt under control is concerned. Even some of those people, you're talking to them too, Evan, say, don't worry, interest rates are low, we can borrow. The truth is interest rates may not stay low forever. We're making assumptions here, and demographics may not be on our side. But even leaving that aside, we need a plan. We need a sense of purpose here. And I will say one thing about what the government is signaling. In the speech from the throne, using the term fiscal Austerity. This is not the time for fiscal austerity. That's spin, Evan. You know it. I know it. It's called fiscal balance. That's like calling, uh, you know, the inheritance tax a death tax. You're just trying to spin it and make it seem like an awful thing. Balance is what we need, and leadership gets us there. We want a vision of, yeah, we had an emergency. We had to take care of it. But what's on the other side of it? Because we do have a country to manage here. Yeah, Joyce. And then the, the politics of this. Um, there has not been the. You know, we spent almost $50 billion, the government announced. There was about four and a half hours of debate. The opposition said, wait, we want more debate. We want expert witnesses. Has debate and, and the parliamentary oversight and all this spending been chucked out the window a bit? Uh, I, I wouldn't say a bit, Evan. I would say quite a bit. Um, we know that the government had the backing of the NDP uh, for these spending bills um, and, and, and things that they were going to concede anyway. So they had the NDP, they didn't need a debate, they limited it to what, four and a half hours, $50 billion went out the door, but that has been the case for months now. So we want to know when will there be a fiscal update, will there even be a budget this year? Um, last time I spoke to them, they said, well, we don't know if it's going to be a budget or a fiscal update. I think now is probably a good time to uh, give us a way forward. How are you going to pay for this? Uh, Yves Giroud, speaking of transparency, you also said on Friday that over $422 billion has been sent out to help businesses. Businesses need help. Again, I get it. But you, why do you say that has lacked transparency? Do Canadians know where that money's gone? Well, I, um, the report that uh, we released on Friday uh, talked about the support that the Bank of Canada has provided to governments, but also uh, four other crown corporations, CMHC, EDC, BDC, and Farm Credit Corporation. And together, they've provided over $200 billion in liquidity supports, mostly to businesses. But yet, uh, these four crown corporations have not provided any indication to parliamentarians as to what the risks are to the fisc, to the federal, uh, uh, federal government, as well as to taxpayers, because ultimately, we are the ones uh, that will bear the, the losses if there are losses. So that uh, information has been missing from the support, liquidity supports that these four crown corporations have provided. I mean, the speed of this, Amanda, has always been about the need is so great, uh, but are we lacking transparency? Let me just shift over to this infrastructure bank. It was founded in 2017. It was capitalized with $35 billion. In three years, they, they invested $4 billion. They announced we we're going to spend $10 billion on infrastructure over the next three years. It's going to create 60,000 jobs. 
Is that realistic? Do you buy this, Amanda? Okay, well, let me say on transparency, and let's keep in mind that the Canada Emergency Response Benefit so sorely needed, as you know. We just heard from CIBC that half a million Canadians put themselves back in the workforce in order to take advantage of that program. So we do need to know who are using these benefits and why, how necessary they were. On the infrastructure bank, lots to criticize there over the last few years, right? Tons of money. It wasn't going out the door. It ended up back in government slush funds. I'll give you one name as to why I'm feeling more confident, and that is Michael Sabia. He's the chair of that infrastructure bank. He says they've done a ton of ground-up work. When they say there's 60,000 jobs, it's because they've counted and they know. They have projects ready to go. It's not political. I talked to him yesterday on Friday, and he said it's absolutely not political. Uh, and he also says that uh, they will have a new CEO soon something we've been waiting for so i think there is a change there he said there's a bottom-up process in place the money will get out the door uh, i felt better for for having talked to him yeah but uh, joyce I, I mean he's got a lot of credibility on this uh he ran the case of course in quebec but there was literally no details on anything they made a big announcement with no projects and this promise of sixty thousand jobs and saying that the $10 billion they intend to invest and targeted for the first time this infrastructure bank is actually targeting investments. But it's a lot of wishful thinking, and we wish them well. Um, it's sort of like, we will build it and they will come, you know, these investors. Well, they don't have the investors yet. Uh, the 60,000 jobs, again, is wishful thinking. It may or may not happen. And the Prime Minister is saying, you know, we will inject $10 billion into these projects and it will be a boost to the economy. Look, our economy is a lot bigger than that. $10 billion won't boost it. I don't know where the $60 million will come from. So this bank has been, from the very start, maybe a good idea, uh, but, a, a, you know, sort of idealistic idea that Canada needed foreign investors, so this would be a way to attract them. We know that it hasn't been. It has mm -hmm. been a failure up until now. And that the good news is we'll wait and see, and then the Parliamentary Budget Officer will make a report, and we can all dig into it. <laughs> Yves right. Giroux, great to have you on the program. Amanda Lang from BNN Bloomberg, <laughs> always a pleasure. And Joyce, thanks so much. All right, big election news in Canada. Last night, the Green Party of Canada made history, electing Annamie Paul, the first black leader of a federal party and the second Jewish leader. Annamie Paul, a human rights lawyer from Toronto, of course, replaces Elizabeth May, who led that party since 2006. And she says the party will push for policies like a guaranteed livable income, in addition to their core pledge of fighting climate change. Paul, unfortunately, faced a series of racial and anti-Semitic attacks during the campaign, but she plans to run in the upcoming by-election in Toronto Centre. All right, coming up after the break, the Scrum convenes from Washington to discuss the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak in the Donald Trump administration as the president is hospitalized. Will the president concede power to Vice President Mike Pence? What are the implications of all this? Stay tuned to Question Period. I'll tell you, Joe, you could never have done the job that we did. You don't have it in your blood. You could have never done that job. I know how to do the job. I know how to get the job Well, you done. didn't do very well in swine flu. H1N1, you were a disaster. Your own chief 14, of staff said 000, you were a disaster. 14,000 people died, not 200,000. Well, it seems like months ago, not less than a week, that the first presidential debate took place. Since then, President Trump has been hospitalized with COVID-19. He still is. Multiple members of his inner circle have contracted the virus. And the entire campaign, with just 30 days left, is upended. 
And while the political and health crisis deepens in the U.S., the second wave of COVID is hitting Canada hard. How much worse is it going to get in both countries? Let's bring in the scrum to break down the impact of all this. Joining us from Washington is CTV's Richard Madden in Aspen, Colorado, former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, and from Toronto, CTV's infectious disease specialist, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. Good morning, Jed. It's good to have you here, Rich. Got to start with you. There's so many conflicting bits of information coming out about the president's condition. What is the latest right now? Well, late last night, the president's physician uh, sent out yet another statement saying the president is recovering, but they're not out of the woods yet. Uh, but it had been an entire day of confusion, mixed messages, uh, and, and in fact, just timelines getting wrong. Uh, we saw the president's team of doctors walking out of Walter Reed Hospital yesterday morning, all wearing their white uh, lab coats, uh, saying that uh, the president is doing just fine. He had a cough, he had a fever, but everything is fine. Moments after that, the president's own chief of staff, Mark Meadows, told reporters off camera that we're still not on a clear path to recovery in the next 48 hours will be critical. That prompted a whole bunch of head scratching the president, the president's doctors and had to recant some of their earlier statements. And really, at the end of the day, it's left a lot more questions than answers on the president's condition. Dr. Sharkawi, you weigh in. We're hearing that he's on remdesivir, which is a drug, but he's okay, that he's doing better, that, or the next 48 hours are critical. From your medical analysis, what do you, based on what we know about his treatment, uh, what do you see here? Well, again, I see a story that's somewhat unsettled and one that leads me to believe he may not be quite as well as has been let on. We know that he had a fever. We know that now he did receive supplemental oxygen at least for some period of time within the White House before walking on his own power into that helicopter. And remdesivir, while not experimental, is a therapy that's reserved generally for people that have at least moderate to severe COVID-19. So this all leads me to believe that perhaps uh, President Trump is not quite as well has, as has been led on. And they, they are probably trying to project an image of uh, stability for political purposes more than anything else right now. Uh, Ambassador Heyman, let's talk about the political situation. And uh, in your view, how has this situation transformed this campaign? I don't know if it's changed the dynamic at all. You know, the president has been in trouble for, you know, a number of months now. Throughout most of this year, he's been running seven to ten points behind. And then he comes into this week trying to change the dynamic. Yet the New York Times comes out with his tax returns, which everybody's been waiting for. Horrific for the campaign. He hasn't paid virtually any taxes. Then he goes into a debate trying to change that dynamic. And he, uh, he doesn't repudiate white supremacy. He doesn't, you know, endorse mask wearing at all. In fact, makes fun of the vice president. And on Friday morning, we all wake up. The president not only has COVID-19, but we find out that the first lady has it, the head of the RNC has it, the head of his campaign has it, three senators have it, his now his body man has it. Look, I don't think the dynamic for this week was a good one for him. But I don't think it changed things very much from where he was before. I think he was looking to make it better, and it definitely didn't do that. Yeah, Richard, now you got to look ahead. What does the Trump campaign do? you got the vice presidential debate on October yeah. 7th. Boy, that's got new urgency. Uh, what does the Trump campaign do now? Yeah, well, the Trump campaign is still trying to fundraise. They're selling products 
there's emailing supporters, but all future events, according to the campaign, will be postponed or will be virtual. Add another wrinkle here that the president's campaign, uh, campaign chair, uh, Brad Steffian, uh, is also tested positive. He is sidelined with one month to go. The bigger question is, how does this affect the day-to-day -day operations of the campaign? Does this force Joe Biden to scale back his events or uh, or cancel events in tandem with the president? We know Biden has pulled down any all of his negative ads, but ultimately this has completely turned the campaign upside down and it's made the issue of this campaign something Donald Trump tried to avoid. Coronavirus, his handling of the pandemic is now front and center. But for the past few months, and we've seen that the president has made law and order, uh, racial injustice has been a key issue. Uh, and, and the crashing economy has been an issue. But now it's the coronavirus that really uh, is going to have a lot of Americans uh, making that their ballot box issue when they cast their ballot. Yeah, his opponent's Joe Biden, but his real opponent, as many have said, is COVID-19. We're talking a lot about the U.S., Dr. Sharkawi. We got to talk about Canada. You know, yeah, sure, people are seeing Donald Trump doesn't like to wear a mask, the super spreader event. Uh, just how worried are you about the, the massive second wave here in Canada? Because we're dealing with it. Uh, are hospitals now concerned that we'll be overrun as well? There's no question about it. This is a situation that is quickly approaching crisis proportions here in Canada for the simple reason that our public health infrastructure is really uh, on the brink of collapse, frankly. Uh, Toronto Public Health just announced that uh, they're no longer capable of contact tracing. That is a stunning development in Canada's largest city uh, when we are being told we are essentially on our own when it comes to tracking our whereabouts and determining where the exposures of COVID-19 exist in the community. Uh, so we're awaiting flu season and respiratory season to emerge at any point in time now. Uh, this is a situation where we have to pull out all the stops. We have to be incredibly vigilant about masking and distancing and limiting our gatherings to those that are absolutely essential. Just There's little margin for error. Uh, Bruce Hammond, just before I let you go, the border, by the way, is going to remain essentially closed again. They keep extending that. Is there, I mean, until this thing's under control, the U.S.-Canada relationship is going to change pretty dramatically, isn't it? Yeah, yesterday, yesterday, over 50,000 new cases.